Hello and welcome to Ponda Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Ogilvie, developmental pediatrician from London, Ontario. Well, the era of COVID vaccines is here. And if you're like me, you've been talking a lot about this lately. So in this episode, we are going to keep those conversations going with a particular focus on the importance of vaccination for individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders, the issues they may encounter and questions that may arise. And for this episode, I have a special guest host, Dr. Ria DaCosta. Dr. Costa is a second-year fellow in developmental pediatrics at the University of Toronto. She has a special interest in knowledge translation and medical education. And she's going to be talking with Dr. Yona Lenski, senior scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, whose research is dedicated to improving the care for adults with neurodevelopmental disabilities. So without delay, I will turn things over to Dr. DaCosta. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lenski. We really appreciate your time and expertise today. Um, I just wanted to provide some context for our listeners. Um, We are recording on April 16th, Friday, 2021, and we are now over one year into the ongoing global coronavirus pandemic. We appreciate your time today and wanted to talk about your work as the Director of the Healthcare Access Research and Developmental Disabilities Program, or HCARD for short, at CAMH. Specifically, I was hoping to talk more about your team's recently published statement entitled, Including People with Developmental Disabilities as a Priority Group in Canada's COVID-19 Vaccination Programs, Key Considerations, which was published in March this year. We are interested in learning more about the current evidence related to the impacts of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic on people with developmental disabilities and the urgent need to prioritize this group for vaccination. Um, What we do know is that there has not seemed to be many public discussions about the healthcare needs of individuals with developmental disabilities. Perhaps today's podcast can spark some discourse around this topic and provide listeners with some practical tips on how to positively impact the lives of Canadians with developmental disabilities, especially during these unprecedented times. So I wanted to start by asking you about current evidence around why individuals with developmental disabilities should be prioritized for the vaccination. Sure. Um, I mean, let me start by saying that, you know, the, the main reason why my sense is in Canada and in many places why we prioritize um, tends to focus on who is at, uh, uh, first of all, if there's a disproportionate risk um, of, and, and also if, if the outcomes and particularly our focus tends to be on mortality, kind of the worst outcome um, is, 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 is greater for one group than other than they should be prioritized, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in the reports that we wrote, we wanted to think about two things that we actually think are both very important. One is, you know, are there greater risks for severe outcomes if this population gets COVID? Um, but also, what are the costs or impacts of living with restrictions during the pandemic, and do they disproportionately impact this group? And I think, you know, anyone who works with this population knows that, in fact, these restrictions do disproportionately impact people with developmental disabilities, but that doesn't seem to be the strongest driver right now of who gets vaccinated. I think it's mortality it really seems to drive why one group gets prioritized over another. And there are many important right now at terrible risk. Uh, and we don't have numbers in Canada yet. We've been able to look toward that tell us what's been happening here because we do not, although we're in a really strong push, uh, especially during the pandemic, to collect data, for example, on 
um, you know, uh, racial inequities. Um, um, and, and certainly we've been looking at the issue of age. Um, we really do not look so much at what happens for people who have disabilities, people who do not. But if we look at data from other places, which is what we've done in our reports, um, you know, uh, there's, there's indisputable evidence that if you have a developmental disability, you are at greater risk of dying if you have COVID. So, um, you know, I don't think that should surprise anyone. In, in terms of our own data and things that we've already published in our own country, you know, similar to other countries, we know that even before COVID, people with developmental disabilities were more likely to uh, die young. So mm -hmm. um, premature mortality in research we've done through the H-Card program, we suggested that it's almost four times as common if you have a developmental disability that you don't, right? So right. if you have all these health conditions at greater uh, uh, rates, and then your access to healthcare doesn't go as smoothly and you don't get what you need when you need it, then yeah, if you're going to get COVID, it's probably going to be worse for you. Right. Um, two studies that we highlighted in our March report, which were recent, um, one of them was looking at what was going on in the UK, and they looked actually across disability over the, the first two waves of COVID in the UK. And then they also looked specifically at the group they call learning disability, which we call here. Um, and uh, they found that, you know, the rates were indeed higher for people with intellectual disabilities than they were the general population of dying um, from COVID. And that even when they adjusted for all kinds of things, the rates were still higher. So they adjusted for comorbidities, they adjusted for um, age, they adjusted for, um, you know, neighborhood income and poverty and things like that. Um, they adjusted for where people live, so they controlled for the fact that people lived in congregate settings, which it was a huge risk. Um, and still people with intellectual disabilities were at greater risk of dying. And the other study that came out, which was a really large study from the U.S., and it was published in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, Catalyst, um, looked at a sort of uh, national cohort of people with intellectual disabilities across the U.S., um, you know, I guess served by different, uh, I guess, private health providers where you pull all the information together, you have a pretty large sample of people. And they looked at a whole bunch of the different um, health conditions we're concerned about as being risk factors for dying if you get COVID. And basically, besides age, the most uh, prominent predictor of mortality um, after you put age into the equation was having an intellectual disability. So this group was um, much more likely to die if they got people. So the, the, the numbers are there, right? You really can't yeah. dispute them. We just haven't seen the published numbers yet for what's going on in our own country, but that shouldn't stop us, I think, from um, pushing them to be prioritized. Uh, and they have been in Ontario uh, in terms of what our sort of policy is for our province uh, in terms right. of being phase two of our rollout strategy. It hasn't been um, done in the same way in any province. Then there's also the issue of what's kind of on paper and what should happen and what does happen. Right. Um, but, uh, so there's some recognition, but not consistently across the country. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing your um, your expertise and sharing some of those studies with us. We'll let our listeners know that we will be providing links to your excellent recommendation papers. And then within those papers, um, if any listeners are interested in, in further looking into some of these studies that Dr. Linsky mentioned, you can feel free to go ahead and read into those a little bit more. Um, and so we know that health is not the only determinant of poor COVID-19 outcomes. And it sounds like we need to account for other factors like disability status, place of residence, comorbid health conditions when determining who is at most risk for contracting COVID or being hospitalized. 
Um, Dr. Linsky, I also wanted to ask you about some of the recommendations your team statement had made around the federal vaccination prioritization process in Canada. Um, what are some of the strategies or action items that we uh, as healthcare providers can prioritize to ensure that individuals with developmental disabilities are successfully included as a priority group in Canada's vaccine planning and now stage two rollout? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first piece, I guess, is like make sure that they're prioritized. So as I mentioned, there are some parts of Canada that are using just an age-based um, sort of criterion at this point. Um, Nova Scotia, I think, is one of the ones where it's most strong in that way. Um, uh, but we also have to make sure that the language, some places, is a bit ambiguous. So it's not really clear, is are all developmental disabilities included? Is it Down syndrome? You know, there's some provinces that have specified a particular condition like Down syndrome. There's some provinces that have said, I think that I have to check the wording, it's in our report, but I think it's like uh, a, a very severe Developmental disability or very significant developmental oh, disability. That's so what's a very significant one versus a significant one. Right. And it's not significant or it's significant to me, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was, um, I have to, it's, it's Newfoundland where they say very significant and then they give the example to show you what they mean. And it's like basically you cannot at all do anything like eating or toileting. Well, most people can do it with some support, right? Like yeah. it doesn't make sense. So we have to have um, explicit language about who we're including mm-hmm. um, and we probably need to make sure that the way you show you're included is not overly complicated right so to have a special letter that you receive from your you know minister of health or to have a special document that you'd only get if you were getting service from a particular agency um, or you have to go and get that piece of paper from a place in the community that you normally would not go to and you're not traveling you're trying to stay safe like right. let's not have additional barriers Mm-hmm. that make it hard for you to know whether you count and to show whether you count, right? So that's the first step. Um, then I think people need good information that they can understand that says it's your turn and here's what's going to happen, right? So you know how to get on the website and book or there's someone you can talk to on the phone or your family doctor or your pediatrician might be able to help you. Like yeah. make it easy to figure out what to do. Um, and right now a lot of that information is not accessible, Mm-hmm. Um, and make sure that the actual process of booking, not only is it easy for you to book it, but it's easy for you to figure out as I'm getting ready to go to that place, what's the kind of stuff that's going to happen to help me to make that a successful visit. And then when I finally get there, make sure it's a successful process. So every vaccination clinic should have a certain degree of accessibility. Mm-hmm. And then even if we do all of those things, there are some people, especially, you know, people who haven't left their homes all year. You know, who may be petrified of needles in the best of circumstance, yeah, would have a really hard time wearing a mask, you know, and keeping their distance from other people, you know, in a public setting, you know, for whatever the reason is, that sort of 15 minute time slot at this mask clinic, you know, on this day, you know, may not work for them. So we do need to think about the people who that doesn't work because they still are possibly at very high risk, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we support them and their essential um, caregivers to make sure they get vaccinated, right? So we might need some more tailored or specialized kinds of clinics to help those people, whether it actually is a specialized clinic they go to or it's a mobile clinic that's coming to them. We want to make sure that everybody who's at risk has a, an equal chance um, make sure that they get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. 
I find just even personally with family members booking vaccination appointments, it is not intuitive, the, the entire process. So I can't imagine for, for families who have additional barriers, whether it's um, with language barriers or accessibility, as you mentioned, how convoluted this entire process has been and, and, and not very accessible. Um, I think that the action items that you outlined are, are so reasonable and, and quite feas feasible if we, if we sat down and thought about it as a group. So um, I'm sure that our listeners will find that very helpful, especially when they're lobbying to their local public health groups um, to make this entire process more streamlined uh, to some of our more vulnerable populations. My next question is, I was wondering if you could touch on some of your work specifically around caregiver mental health um, for individuals um, with families who have developmental disabilities, um, especially during this unprecedented past year that we've had, what are some tips and strategies that you have for caregivers? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, we could do a whole hour, I think, just talking about that one issue. You know, I think we all kind of say this, and it, it doesn't hurt to say it again, even though it sounds, well, it's kind of an irony in it because it's about being on an airplane. But we always talk about how when you're on the airplane, you're supposed to put your mask on yourself before you put it on your child, right? So, yeah. you know, no doubt, the people who are, you know, bearing so much of what's been going on over a year now are these families who have lost so many supports, and yet they have to take care of their loved one who's really struggling. I think it's worth mentioning there's all families who have a loved one who, because of their um, either their age or the supports that are required or how difficult it is for that family member to provide all the support, they may not be living with them. They might be living in a support care environment, which brings a whole host of other kinds of difficulties, which also affect caregiver mental health. I mean, I think, you know, my mental health, so I have a sibling with developmental disability. You know, my mental health is impacted by her mental health. Her mental health um, know, is impacted by my mental health, right? So right. we have to take care of both. So I sometimes say, you know, the first thing we have to do to take care of caregiver mental health is make sure that their loved one's getting the services they need. Right. You know, you can tell them to take as many bubble baths as they want, but if what they need is support for their loved one, there's nothing to replace that, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that at the same time that we make sure they're getting the supports that they need for their loved one, we also have to make sure they get their own supports. Um, I think it's helpful to notice with your patients, um, like if it's a parent or a sibling or whatever, to know kind of where things are at, to make it, to make it normal, to make it part of what you do at every visit, you know, to check in on how they're doing, what's their level of family distress. So we have like a scale we developed uh, several years ago, uh, did my colleague, Jonathan White, so it's called the Brief Family Distress Scale. It's a 10 item scale. It's like a thermometer, right? It kind of says like 10 is it absolutely couldn't get any worse with crisis. And one is things are really okay. But kind of saying, you know, today's a four and this is why. And having families know that it's really important for them to know where they're at and for them to be able to express that in a quick and easy way and notice when it's going up. Sometimes it goes up for a few hours and then it comes right back down. There's a few things we can do to make things easier. And sometimes it goes up and it doesn't come back down. And that's when we have to really worry. So I think the first step towards helping families is giving the services they need to their loved ones. Yeah. The next step is noticing when there's a problem. Um, and there are some things I think that are helpful families besides just giving services to their loved one, I think for them making the navigation of those services easier would be helpful. Yeah. And helping families to feel prepared um, because it is a difficult time. Um, but I think also, you know, I think as a, you know, as a, as a family caregiver myself, like I always want to fix things and make them better. Of course. Um, and that works great when I can do it. Sometimes like during COVID, there are some things we cannot fix right now. 
Um, so it can also be helpful to learn how to live with, or be with things that are not great and figure out what's the most important thing to do right now for my own mental health and for my loved one, right? Knowing that I actually can't fix it. And instead of getting like so consumed by what a failure you are because you can't fix it, how can you be with that knowing it's not great and knowing that there still are ways it can eventually get better and here's some small things we can do at this moment. And I think there's a lot of power. You know, I do a lot of my work with families. Mm-hmm. I think it's physicians to recognize how much you offer when you're simply giving the space for them to be able to be struggling and to tell you that yeah. and for you to listen and say, look, I don't have like the solution, but I'm right here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That actually does something. Mm-hmm. So I think we feel like, well, that's not enough. Well, <laughs> people, right. But that's yeah. actually really important. Um, and sometimes I think it's also helpful for families to know, not just know that they can go to you about something, but to maybe also feel connected to other people who might be in similar situations. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there's a number of things we can do, but definitely, you know, and the other thing is that the family mental health issues we were talking about a year ago, it's totally different now. Yeah. Because there we were like all regular, whatever we were doing. And then something huge happened. We weren't expecting now it's like a year of exhaustion Yeah. of all this stuff happening. You know, we don't have the same resources left in us as families yeah. uh, to do what we need to now. Um, and also our bar probably isn't as high in terms of what we're asking for and what we need as before. For sure. For sure. So. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking on that. Um, it's one of the, 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 um, the draws to working with this particular population is the wonderful resiliency that we see with families um, and with our patients and, and clients and um, I completely agree that sometimes it's easy for us to forget, but something as simple as, like you mentioned, normalizing discussions around caregiver well-being um, and opening uh, those more uh, uncomfortable discussions and giving the family space just to even vent um, can be so helpful. And I'm sure our listeners will find that really, really useful advice and very practical advice as well. So maybe then we'll move to the flip side of that discussion, which is, some uh, description of um, what we can do as staff and um, and uh, uh, primary caregivers, or, uh, sorry, primary care providers working with these families, uh, particularly because right now there is such an emphasis on burnout um, with staff um, working with special populations throughout the pandemic. What are some tips and strategies that you have for, for us in, in this regard? Yeah, I I don't know if I'm any more of an expert on this, I think, to be honest, than than you. I think that we all kind of know, or I hope we know, or we have to take the time to know, you know, what it is that's going to help us right now. Like, not just to help us do our work, but to help us manage ourselves. Because, again, the same thing I just said about family. Yeah. Like, as healthcare providers, we also need to put on our own mask. Mm-hmm. So I think we all want to really save everybody, and there's something we can do to help people. And sometimes they're quite small, and they make a huge difference. Sometimes we try stuff and it doesn't work. Sometimes we're wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that sort of, you know, recognition of that, that kind of forgiveness, that space to make errors, the way to connect with other providers, um, you know, all that stuff matters. I think in terms of what matters to families or what matters to people with disabilities right now, you know, again, just from my own experience, um, working with, with some of these individuals through projects that we're doing, um, I think being available and present knowing which resources were designed for them. So I think mm-hmm. it's almost like we have 
at the beginning, we had no information. Now we just have way too much information. <laughs> yes. A hundred different websites. It's confusing. You don't know if you went to the right one. So whether it's about vaccination information or mental health information or services, you know, what are some of the best websites that you can go to that have some of that information that explains things tailored to that group? Mm-hmm. You know, because it's not helpful if you read information that wasn't designed for you. Yeah. Um, you know, then it's like, why did I even bother that in work, right? Or like offering a resource that actually doesn't exist. So you got you kind of got to know, like, this has been vetted. This is good. This is helpful. And yeah. being able to share that information, I think, makes a difference. You know, there are um, supports for caregivers. There are supports and resources for people with disabilities. So kind of knowing where that stuff is. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think I know more about um, people sort of in adulthood. And you probably think more as a pediatrician about um, people when they're younger. Yes. You know, we have different kinds of challenges. So you have challenges of kids right now who are not in school. Yes. A decision about whether they go back to a special ed classroom, mm-hmm. you know, when the other classes haven't opened or if they continue staying home. I work more with individuals who actually haven't had anything going on for them for a year. Um, and even though they're just a bit older, doesn't mean that it's necessarily that much easier for them. Mm-hmm. And also we work with different sectors in terms of, um, you know, where the funding comes from and how things are provided. Yeah. And also the role of families varies. So even though families might be really important across the lifespan, sort of who makes the decisions, we have laws that kind of change how all that works as of the age of 18, right? So right. sort of different different things that I think we deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think having a few resources at your fingertips can be helpful. And, you know, we've tried to make some resources for people with disabilities and for families, um, more so for adulthood that we put on our HCARD COVID site. And I know also the primary care program that I work with um, that runs out of Surrey Place focused mm-hmm. on development disabilities has a number of really helpful resources for healthcare providers uh, around COVID um, and sort of links and things again that would help um, patients and families. Perfect. Thank you so much. And actually that segues beautifully into our next little uh, subtopic, which is important resources that we can access, whether it's through useful websites and organizations to provide our listeners with more information when advocating to, for this specific vulnerable population. And as you mentioned, Dr. Linsky, having resources that are specifically created or designed with this population in mind so that all of the information there is um, information that families and caregivers can find useful and practical and specific to their needs is very, very helpful. So once again, to listeners of the podcast today, we will be linking all of these resources, tools, organizations, and websites in our show notes. Um, And in addition um, to the ones that Dr. Linsky mentioned already, some resources that our Ponda group has also found helpful to refer to include the Global Down Syndrome Foundation out of Colorado, um, the website for the Down Syndrome Medical Interest Group through the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, the Autism Speak Statement on Autism and COVID Vaccines that was published in January this year has also a lot of very helpful, simple uh, summary tips uh, for families and primary care providers alike. Um, And then from an advocacy standpoint, we would also like to encourage our listeners to explore the COVID vaccine booking system in their own regions and reach out to your local public health unit to streamline the booking process for our patients with developmental disabilities and their families in whatever way you can. Um, And every voice is is helpful when advocating for our patients and their families. Um, Dr. Linsky, was there anything else that you'd like to add for our listeners today uh, around this topic? 
Um, maybe just to build on what you said around vaccine navigation. You know, I think we've heard about this. It's called Vaccine Hunters is a new resource <laughs> on, the, on the internet. Yeah. And it's so true. Like it is confusing and complicated. But again, there's a certain power, a certain wisdom that you have in your roles to sort of be that link between what happens, say, with a public health unit or a hospital and with the family and the individual that you know best. So a little bit of help with that navigation um, and knowing sort of which resources people too, I think is really helpful and mm -hmm. really fostering um, conversations about vaccination for people who aren't yet um, able to go because it's not their turn or aren't yet um, comfortable going because they have concerns, you know, just really supporting um, people um, and making sure, you know, that it's not a single vaccine, right? So mm -hmm. um, probably looking at people doing this more than once and talking about boosting and all kinds of other things. So how do we make sure this is the kind of experience that doesn't freak people out so much they never want to do it again. Yeah. This is part of how we take care of ourselves and care for each other. And I think the extra time it takes for us to do this um, it is really going to matter. Um, and it's probably one of those few things right now that actually makes us feel really good about something we're doing. Right? Yeah. So when you see, every time you see someone post a picture, or you hear a story about someone who got vaccinated, how like we need those stories right now mm -hmm. in healthcare, I think. So everything we can do to support people. Yeah, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, so to, finally, to wrap up for today, we can summarize our discussion and um, uh, all of the great information Dr. Linsky has provided us with today. Um, we know that public health restrictions during this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic have negatively impacted various marginalized groups and also specifically including individuals and their families um, who have special needs. Um, we do know that international research and research coming out of Canada as well clearly indicates that those who have developmental disabilities are a very high risk group and should be prioritized for vaccinations as we roll out um, our campaigns. As clinicians working with this vulnerable group, we should continue to push for more inclusive policies around their access to COVID vaccinations. So I'd like to thank you, Dr. Lenski, for sharing your research and your time with us today. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you and learning from you. Um, on behalf of Ponda, we hope that our listeners all stay safe and well through these trying times. And thank you all very much for tuning in today. Thank you.